Let's pray together. We'll dive into our study in Mark chapter 9. Jesus, uh, you made a promise that whoever comes to you, you will never cast out. For those who have true and living faith in you, you promise that nothing, nothing can separate us from your love, neither life nor death, angels, rulers, height or depth, nothing else in all creation can separate us for your love from us. Hearing those promises, we come to you this morning. We're eager to hear from the words of eternal life that you've given us. Humble us this morning by your spirit. Help us to hear, to learn, to know the truth that you have given us more and more. Shine in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of you, Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to begin with a quiz this morning. So if you have, you know, a bulletin, you can write it down. There's four answers to this quiz. Okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read two quotations. They come from the same source, two quotations from the same source. And your job is to determine who these quotations come from. Okay, four possibilities. A, Pharaoh, the Pharaoh from the Bible. B, Emperor Nero. C, Muhammad the creator of Islam, or D, Adolf Hitler. All right, A, B, C, or D. Here are the quotes. Are you ready? If you give one of these simple, childlike followers of mine a hard time bullying or taking advantage of their simple trust, causing them to stray from me, you'll soon wish that you hadn't. You'd be better off dropped in the middle of the lake with a large stone tied around your neck. So that's quote number one. Quote number two, if your eye distracts you from looking to God, pull it out, throw it away. You're better off one-eyed and alive than exercising your 2020 vision from inside the eternal fires of hell. Both of those quotes, same source. Which one is it? A, Pharaoh, B, Nero, C, Mohammed, or D, Hitler? The answer It's actually a trick question. (laughs) The answer is E, it's none of the above. (laughs) In fact, some of you may be surprised to hear this. Both of those quotations are paraphrases from Jesus. Both of those quotations are paraphrases from the text that we're going to read this morning in Mark chapter 9. They're very sobering warnings that Jesus gives to his disciples about the destructiveness of sin but also the eternal realities of hell. It's quite sobering to think about, but if you were to actually compare Jesus to all of the rest of the Bible, you'd find that Jesus speaks about hell more frequently than all of the New Testament authors. In fact, Jesus speaks about hell more often than all of the Old Testament authors of Scripture. In fact, Jesus speaks about hell more than all of the Old Testament and New Testament authors combined. That's how often Jesus speaks about hell. And that's the sobering truth about the teaching ministry of Jesus. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, we've been talking about how Mark has moved on into the second act of his gospel. If you think of Mark as a play, the curtain has dropped on the first act. And as the curtain rises on the second act, a new pattern begins to emerge in the teaching ministry of Jesus. See, in the first act, Jesus frequently taught in parables. Now, Jesus is going to 
preach in, in <laughs> preaching terribles. He is going to teach in parables later on in his ministry. But you see this new pattern begin to emerge in the second act, where Jesus takes time out specifically for his disciples, his closest followers, and teaches less in parables. And instead, he begins to teach very clearly, very directly and very plainly about what it means to follow him in a world like ours. You remember a couple weeks back, Jesus did this for a first time where he took his disciples aside and said, hey, listen to me. When you follow me in this world, what that means is you have to pick up your cross and follow me all the way to Jerusalem. You have to suffer for the sake of following me in this world. And we're gonna see that this morning where Jesus Again, on his way to Jerusalem to die for the sins of many, he takes this moment with his disciples, following this pattern to clearly, directly, and plainly give them four sobering warnings. The first warning is a clear warning about the destructiveness of sin. And then he gives three more warnings about the eternal reality of hell. So if you'll pick up with me, this is Mark chapter 9. We're going to look at verse 42. Remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he says to them, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Anybody here want my job this morning? <laughs> I think it goes without saying, these two teachings, sin and hell, they may be the most uncomfortable and the least talked about subjects, not just in our broader culture, but even in the church today. In fact, I was uh, listening to a podcast where one of the people who was being interviewed was talking about an interaction he had with a former member of the royal family. And this member of the royal family was worshiping at a cathedral in England, one of the main cathedrals, and one of the high-ranking bishops within the Church of England was regularly pe preaching at this cathedral and the royal family family uh, often went there for their Sunday services. So after the service, this member of the royal family approached the bishop and asked, sir, is it true that we are sinners and there is a hell? And the bishop responded, your highness, Jesus taught so. The church has always believed so. And the creeds of Christianity say so. And so in response to this, this member of the royal family said, if that is the case, then why in the name of God will you not say so? 
I believe there's a great deal of truth in that same story, not when we just consider a culture 4,500 miles away to our east, but it's true here in the United States. After all, if you go to a Christian bookstore and you were to pick up a Christian book, let me ask you, when is the last time you saw a book that concentrated for 200 plus pages on the teaching of sin or the teaching of hell? When is the last time you read a book that did that? Or when have you seen a chapter focused on either of those subjects. In fact, I did some research this week. I looked at the top five best-selling Christian books in the year 2022. This was on barnesandnoble.com. And I searched all of those books for the instances of the word sin and instances of the word hell throughout all of the books. And it's noteworthy that out of those five books, actually only two of them even mentioned hell or sin. And in all of those searches... Over 1,296 pages, the word sin was used 31 times. Hell, in near 1,300 pages, was only mentioned three times. Two of those were saying, what the blank. (laughs) So not exactly saying it as Jesus intended it. At some point, we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus talking about sin and hell too much? Jesus seemed to speak about sin frequently. You've probably seen this as we've been going through the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, Jesus was proclaimed as a savior from our sins. Jesus was preceded in chapter 1 by John the Baptist who preached a baptism for forgiveness of sins. Again, Mark chapter 1, Jesus' first words of ministry were repent and believe. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent means to turn away from sin. Mark chapter 2, Jesus told a paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Mark chapter 3, Jesus spoke about the sin of blasphemy. Mark chapter 7, Jesus referred to sin not as something that pollutes us from the outside, but is actually something that is like a disease that lives in each of us, causing all manner of uncleanness and unrighteousness to come from us. Mark chapter 8, Jesus referred to his generation as a deeply sinful generation. Jesus spoke about sin to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders sin to large crowds, sin to his disciples. The same is true about the subject of hell. It seems as if if Jesus were to come to the United States in the 21st century, we would find his teaching deeply uncomfortable and deeply intolerable. So again, we should ask ourselves, is Jesus talking about sin and hell too much or are we speaking about it too little? Now, to be sure... Some people teach on sin and hell and they seem to get this certain sort of satisfaction from it or enjoyment out of it as if there is pleasure in the fact that people will not turn away from their sin, that people will not embrace Jesus for forgiveness, that some will endure the torment of hell. They seem to derive pleasure from that fact and we want to avoid that posture altogether. We want to teach on sin and hell. We want to do so in love and in sincerity and concern for the souls of all humankind. Theologian and author John Scott put it well. He said, no person should talk about hell without tears in their eyes. That's the posture we want to embrace when we teach on these things. Though it's uncomfortable, though it's not regularly talked about, though we would like to avoid the subject altogether, we must 
teach on sin and hell because Jesus did more so than any other biblical author. And we must do so with tears in our eyes, with love in our hearts, concern in our souls, warning those who may be perishing, warning them just as Jesus does here. So Jesus speaking with his disciples, pick it up in verse 42, Jesus gives his first warning and it's a warning about the destructiveness of sin. Verse 42, Jesus says, warning, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into sea. Notice, we have a warning here first about causing others to sin, specifically causing a follower of Jesus to sin and stumble in their faith. When Jesus talks about his followers, he often refers to them as children or little ones. That's what Jesus means when he says here in verse 42, whoever causes my little ones to sin. He's talking about children of God, his followers. And you know, Jesus often refers to followers of him as little children. Remember the paralytic in Mark chapter 2? This paralytic who had been paralyzed his entire life, four friends, bring him to Jesus. But as they bring him to be healed, the entire house is swarmed by this large crowd. So in desperation, they take him to the roof of where Jesus is at. They tear a hole in the ceiling and they lower this man, this paralytic, down through the roof right into the table where Jesus is teaching. And Jesus, looking at this man and seeing his faith, says, son, Son, child of God, your sins are forgiven. Or you know the story of the hemorrhaging woman, which we saw in Mark chapter 5. This woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. This ceremonially unclean hemorrhage that was coming out of her. When she reached out to Jesus and touched Jesus, he approached her and said, Daughter, daughter of the living God. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. So when Jesus refers to these little ones here. He's referring to his followers, his disciples. Now, during the time of Jesus, plenty of people, there were plenty of people who wanted to take those who had sincere childlike faith in God and to pull them off the course of following Jesus in true faith. For example, the scribes and the Pharisees repeatedly show up throughout the gospel of Mark. And these scribes and Pharisees were notorious for adding to and superimposing their traditions and their rituals, their beliefs over their clear teachings of the Bible. So in effect, what would happen is you have these 600 commands in the Old Testament, 600 or so laws in the Old Testament, and they would add on those oral tradition after oral tradition after oral tradition, law upon law upon law upon law, all the while adding to the scriptures and in effect, pulling the people of God, the little ones of Jesus apart from a sincere faith in Jesus and instead pulling them into the traditions and rules of men. Jesus on one occasion is speaking to these Pharisees, actually speaking about these Pharisees, and he's during... This is during his last week of life, and he's rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees. And he said, quote, these scribes and the, the Pharisees, they, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with one finger. They add, they pile on constant rules, constant regulations, making people feel insecure in their faith, making them to think, I don't measure up. 
The law of God does that on its own. You don't need to add extra things. And what's worse, Jesus says, they also do all their deeds to be seen by others. Now, during the time of Jesus, rabbis, Pharisees, scribes, people who would have been common teachers, they would wear these things called phylacteries. Now, you're going to see that word come up here. They, a phylactery was this large wooden box that would have a scroll with all the laws of God rolled up into it. And they would wear it on their foreheads and they'd strap it on their arms. And then... People would also wear these things called fringes on the end of their robes. And all of these things were a reminder to follow the way of the Lord, to follow the law of God and obedience. But listen to what they did, the scribes and the Pharisees. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Everything they do is not a, to guide people in their faith, but it's to be seen by others, to be perceived as religious, to be perceived as spiritual. And in effect, they do nothing but pull little ones off the course of following Jesus, causing them to sin with their big boxes on their heads and their big boxes on their arms and their constant unceasing adding of oral tradition and law upon the backs of people, but they don't even want to move them with their finger. Today, we probably, in our culture, we probably face this opposite problem. In our culture, we're not tempted so much to add to Scripture, to add to God's Word, saying you have to do more than God requires. We actually have the opposite temptation, don't we? Where we're tempted to subtract from scripture, to take away from God's commands. We avoid one ditch over here and thinking that we need to correct, we actually go into the opposing ditch on the other side, being pulled away from God. But it's equally as dangerous. Some of you are familiar with the Jefferson Bible. Thomas Jefferson uh, was a you know, brilliant thinker, enlightenment thinker, political thinker, and what he did is he wanted to think of Jesus in a way that people during his time would really appeal to. So he wanted to think of Jesus more as an enlightened, scientifically minded man, a rational thinker, a, you know, a champion of freedom and liberal democracy. So what he did is he took a Bible, the New Testament, and he literally took a razor to the Bible, cutting out sayings and stories of the Gospels that he found appealing, and he would take those and he would paste them into a separate book and throw out the rest. And the end product was this Jesus who had no supernatural power, a Jesus who performed no miracles, a Jesus who had no divinity, who was not like any God-like figure, but he was just like any other human being, a Jesus who did not rise from the dead, a Jesus who was not God in the flesh. Jesus wanted a Jesus, or sorry, Jefferson wanted a Jesus who would appeal to the masses, who would appeal to a more rationally and scientifically minded culture. So he took a razor to Jesus and made him in his own image. And here we are, 197 years downstream from Thomas Jefferson, and we find ourselves doing the same thing. We want a Jesus, a God who sounds more appealing, but in our culture, it's not so much a scientifically, rationally-minded Jesus that we want. We want a Jesus who will appeal to us in our age of greed and consumerism and our 
culture of sexual and gender freedom. So just like Thomas Jefferson, there are teachers who effectively just take a razor to the scriptures and they never mention the Bible's warning against those who desire to be rich. Saying the desire to be rich is like a snare that will entrap you. They never speak on how the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. They never warn others about the accumulation of riches in this life. When Jesus talked about a man who had all this abundance in riches and what he thought was, man, I've done well for myself. I'm going to store all these riches up in a barn and I'm going to build more barns so I can fill those up. Jesus said, you fool, you fool. This very night, your life is required of you. And here you were focusing on the riches of this world. They skip over those things that speak directly to the sin of lust and sexual immorality. They gloss over the commands of sexual fidelity and monogamy. They twist the meaning of what the Bible says when it clearly talks about things like marriage. And they, they twist it to condone sinful relationships. They take a razor blade and excise those portions of Scripture seeking to make Jesus and God more appealing to our world and our culture. But in effect, they're doing nothing more than pulling people off the course of following Jesus, causing the little ones of Jesus to stumble by saying, no, the Bible doesn't say that. No, Jesus never taught that. No, that part, that's not important anymore. In fact, if you, if you understand it in its context, he wasn't really saying what he thought he was saying. No, he did. He did. <laughs> he did. And notice Jesus' warning here. He says, those who cause other to sin in this way, this, this warning is grave. It, it's dreadful. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. During the time of Jesus, and this is still practiced in other cultures today, when people would grind grain, what they would do is they would put it, uh, they'd give it to a miller and they'd put it in this large kind of circular stone path. And then they would take this large stone that was a circle and it was about three or four uh, feet across, extremely heavy, and they would put it in the middle of this path and they would have an ox or a donkey pull this millstone all the way around the grain until it crushed the grain to find powder so that you, you could use it for baking. And this stone was so heavy that if you wanted to flip it over, if you had to flip it over, if it had fallen over, you needed two oxen to actually pull it back upright until it could be pulled to be rolled again. And Jesus is warning here, specifically those who teach. If a person causes one of his followers to sin and stumble in their faith by pulling them off the path of truth or pulling them off the path of faithfulness to God by the way that they live, he is saying it is better if that kind of stone, a millstone, were tied around their neck and they were thrown into the heart of the sea. It is dreadful. Jesus warns without equivocation, directly, clearly, simply about the destructiveness of sin. Sin is so destructive, it would be better to drown in the sea than to cause others to sin and pull them off the course of following Jesus. And if that wasn't uncomfortable enough, again, who wants my job this morning? <laughs> As if that wasn't uncomfortable enough, Jesus' thought moves on and it intensifies 
Jesus gives three warnings about the eternal reality of hell. Beginning in verse 43, Jesus says, Warning, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame. Sorry, I've lost my spot here. Sorry, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go into hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, Jesus here, of course, is not suggesting that we should really dismember ourselves. Just want to be clear here. Although some people throughout history, incidentally, some people throughout history have taken Jesus literally on this point. There was a man by the name Origen of Alexandria. He lived during the late 1st, early 2nd century. Origen, in heeding Jesus' warning in this passage, castrated himself in order to overcome sensual and sexual desires. Now, I do not believe that that's what Jesus is teaching here, that we are to physically dismember ourselves. He's not teaching that, so please, I want to see everybody with two feet come back next week, okay? No, Jesus is teaching something significant here, though, a spiritual truth. See, Jesus in other places and the Bible in other places make it clear that Jesus came to earth to destroy sin. And Jesus destroys sin in two ways. And and you need to remember these two terms. It's very important. The first way that Jesus destroys sin is by destroying the penalty that our sins deserve. This is called justification. That's the word that you need to remember, justification. Jesus destroys the penalty of our sins, the penalty of our sins in his crucifixion. What he did is he actually took the penalty and the punishment of our sins upon himself. And in his death on the cross, Jesus took the full condemnation, the full judgment that our sins deserve, sacrificing himself as a punishment for our sins. And the result is that the penalty of sins that we have committed has been completely destroyed. Completely destroyed. Through faith in Jesus Christ, there is no sin that you could commit past, present, or future that Jesus has not already been punished for on the cross because he has destroyed the penalty of sin on the cross. That is justification. That's how forgiven you are. You can never outsin your justification and your right standing with God through faith in him. But Jesus also came to destroy the power of sin in our lives as well. And this is what's known as sanctification. Justification comes first, sanctification comes second. You have faith in Jesus and you are justified. You are forgiven. You are embraced by God. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But after justification, God sends the spirit of Christ into your heart to now sanctify you from the inside out, to change you more and more into the likeness of Jesus. Simply put, as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, Jesus says throughout your life, he will conform you, shape you, mold you more and more into creatures that look like him. And he will shape you and mold you more into a creature fit for heaven by killing sin in you 
and turning you toward the righteousness that Jesus walked in. So there are parts of us, the Bible teaches this, when it comes to sin, there are parts of us that are so mired, entangled, gripped by sin, so close to us, that they actually are so common to us that they are like our hands and our feet. We don't even think about them. We overlook them. And what Jesus is saying is that by his grace, through his spirit, he is going to destroy those parts of us in order to make us fit for heaven through sanctification. You think of a surgical oncologist, right? When they cut somebody open, when a surgical oncologist opens a person, putting them under their knife, their mission is to completely eradicate every cancerous cell that is killing a person from the inside out, to utterly destroy it. That's what Jesus means to do. Jesus, by his grace, means to excise, to surgically remove those parts of us that do not conform to the kingdom of God, to kill sin within us. That's what Jesus is teaching his disciples here. Look again at verse 43. In verse 43, that's that's what Jesus means when he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Cut it off. It's better to enter life, eternal life, the kingdom of God, crippled, than with two hands to go to hell, the unquenchable fire. That part of you, that sinful part of you that you cling to, that has become so ingrained within you, that part of you needs to be removed. If you do not, by God's grace, seek to cut that sin out, then sin will destroy you. I'd wager, I'd wager this. If you were to ask any man who has followed Jesus for more than three minutes, for more than three minutes, and if that man has struggled with internet pornography, and you were to ask him, are you happy Are you fulfilled? Are you flourishing in your walk with God? I would wager my life savings. They would say, no, I am miserable. I am miserable. I hate my sin. I hate it from the bottom of my soul. I hate everything about it. And that's because sin is not a friend. It is a cancer that means to kill and destroy. Sin means to drag a creature made in the likeness and image of God into the unquenchable fires of hell. Therefore, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. An oncologist does not say, well, I think we can leave a little bit of this malignant tissue over here and we can live with a tiny amount of cancer there. Don't worry about this tumor in this area. No, it needs to be sacrificed, cut out, removed and destroyed. Sin is no different. You cannot tolerate and make friends with the sin that Jesus came to destroy. John Owen, the theologian said, you will either be killing sin or it will be killing you. You will either be killing sin by grace through the spirit of God as a new creation or sin will be killing you. You played this game. It's called Would You Rather? (laughs) You know this game, right? You put these two terrible options side by side and you ask people, which would you rather have? You've played this game before. Would you rather have a sore throat for a month or an ear infection for a month? Would you rather have lemon juice squeezed into a wound or salt shaken into your eye? Would you rather have your shoulder dislocated or listen to a Nickelback song, right? (laughs) Terrible, awful, unthinkable horrors. You know these real terrible options. And you want to pick the one that's less horrible. You do this with your kids, too. Would you rather have dad cook you dinner or mom cook you dinner? Would you rather have mom change your diaper or dad change your diaper? 
when Jesus puts these, these terrible options side by side, they're terrible, they're ghastly to think about. He says, you can either die to sin in this life. That's what Jesus says he will do through sanctification. He will give you his spirit, Christ in us, to put to death sin in our life, to excise it out, to go under the knife. You can do that, cut off hand, foot, eye. Or you can hold on to that sin and cherish that sin, make friends with that sin, and it will lead to eternal condemnation. And when Jesus compares these two side by side, he says it is not even close. Take the surgical process of faith in Jesus and removal of sin by his spirit. Take that in a minute. You do not want this second option. Whatever the sacrifice is, it is far better, far better than the alternative, the eternal fires of hell. It is not even close. I have known people who have struggled with every manner of lust, every manner of sexual deviation, every manner of greed, every manner of judgment, every manner of envy. And I know talking to those people, even though they struggle to suppress those things, even though they struggle to kill those things in their life, they know because the spirit of Christ lives inside them, that option is far better. It is far, far, far better than the alternative. Just look how dreadful Jesus says hell actually is. Look at verse 43. Jesus describing hell says, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Jesus describes hell as this fire that can't be put out. A fire that's eternal, never-ending, unquenchable. You remember back in 2018 in November, out in California, the campfire spread in Paradise, California? And this thing started, and it spread like wildfire. And one week went by, and it was still going. And then two weeks went by, and it was still going. No containment. And then it entered the third week, and it was still going. And you were asking, will this ever end? Will they ever put this thing out? Jesus says the fire of hell will never put it, be put out. It is unquenchable. In verse 48, Jesus adds to this imagery. He says, in hell, it is like a corpse where... On the corpse, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. A worm, a grub, a maggot is, if you take this at face value, hell is likened to grubs eating away at a rotting corpse, but the decomposition process never ends. The, the worm never stops tormenting. It doesn't die. Even the word hell Jesus mentions hell three times here, verses 43, 45, 47. It's the Greek word Gehenna, which is a transliteration from a Hebrew word, Hinnom. And it was a reference to the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. This was this valley on the south of Jerusalem where some ancient Israelites during the time of Ahaz, the king, went and brought their newborn children and sacrificed them in fire to the Canaanite god Molech. 
as this sacrificial offering, offering these newborn children over to fire in order to appease this false god. And because of that, God later on changed the name from the Valley of Hinnom to the Valley of Slaughter. And later Jewish people, not knowing what to do with this area because it was so desecrated, it was so unholy, it was so impure, so unclean, that with that area, they turned it into a place where you could go, you could burn trash, burn dead animals, burn other corpses, usually corpses of those who were criminals, and any other type of refuse you wanted to pour on, that's where you put it. These descriptions are dreadful to think about. We were driving to school the other day, and I noticed McLean... My daughter, she sits usually right behind me, and she's looking out the window. She's quiet. She's usually a goofball talking a million miles an hour. Well, she's behind me, and she's quiet looking out the window, and I'm wondering what's going through her mind. Well, about halfway to school, she asked me the question, Dad, are there people in hell? I'd say every single fiber in my body wanted to say no. I don't want my six-year-old daughter thinking about the dread of hell, but who am I to talk over Jesus? Who am I to take the razor to the words of Jesus and remove this warning when he so clearly wants his people to know, no, this is real. Out of love, he warns us, hell is eternal, it is real, and it is dreadful. It is unthinkably dreadful. You know, in the Apostles' Creed, we we always get asked this because we recite the Apostles' Creed here. It has that line, talking about Jesus. Jesus, we believe Jesus is the Lord God, the King of heaven and earth, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, buried. He descended into hell. John Calvin, who was a 16th century theologian, he put this well. He said, Jesus' descent into hell was not merely descending into a physical death or to the grave or even to the actual location of hell, but it represents the biblical teaching that Jesus suffered all the torments that a soul in hell cut off from God's presence would experience. He bore all the punishment evildoers ought to have sustained. Jesus suffered the death that God in his wrath had inflicted upon the wicked. Not only was Christ's body given as a price of our redemption, but he paid a greater and more excellent price. Where on the cross he suffered in his soul the terrible torments of a condemned and forsaken man in hell. You see, at the cross, Jesus proves that God himself was willing to endure hell in your place. Jesus does not warn about hell in the abstract. No, Jesus knows hell firsthand. He went there for you so that, God forbid, you would ever go there yourself. So isn't it ironic? We often think, you know, if we remove hell from our vocabulary because it's so uncomfortable, so unspeakable, so dreadful, if we remove that from our vocabulary or our thoughts, then that will make God seem more loving. But when we do that, we actually make God less loving. We actually take away the very thing. We take a razor to the very thing that God was willing to endure to show us just how much he does love us. We remove the very thing he was willing to undergo in order to save us 
for eternity and life with him. Jesus warns his disciples clearly, directly, simply, and repeatedly more than any biblical writer about the eternal reality of hell because he does not want you to go there. You know, when you're doing, when you're doing projects around the house, and I don't read the directions, <laughs> right? You're doing these projects and you're flipping through the directions thinking, I don't need this, I don't need this, I know what I'm doing, I know what I'm doing, I know what I'm doing. But then you come to the big triangle with the warning. And if you're like me, you just continue to skip over the warning. <laughs> but if you're wise, you look at that warning and you read it carefully. Whether it's electricity, whether it's something that's heavy, it means to save you. Jesus warns you here, sin is destructive. There's nothing good about it. If you are not killing sin by grace, it will be killing you. And its ultimate goal is to destroy you in hell. So cut it off. Allow the spirit of Christ in you, the Christ at work in you, to sanctify you into eternal life. So to close, Jesus summarizes his warning. Verse 49, Jesus says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. See, in the Old Testament, salt was added to a sacrifice. Every sacrifice that you read about had salt added to it. Jesus here is using this sacrificial language, and what he's saying is everyone, everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone will either undergo the fire of sanctification in this life, a fire that purifies a person in this life leading to the kingdom of God, offering up your body and soul to Jesus, who as a surgeon will take with a knife your sin by his grace, who by his grace will work within you to destroy those parts of you that are sinful and not fit for the kingdom of God. You will undergo that fire. Or you will undergo a different fire. The unquenchable fire of hell. In other words, you can allow Jesus to shape you, form you, to make you more a creature fit for heaven by sacrificing in this life, or you can allow sin to ravage you and destroy you in the life to come. Jesus wants to make you a creature of heaven. C.S. Lewis has this fantastic illustration where he says, when, when you're a Christian, you think, okay, there are parts of me that certainly need to change. Nobody's perfect. And so you think when you embrace Jesus that he's going to, you know, remove those little new, new nuisances in your life. And he says, being a Christian is a lot like being a house. You think, yeah, I have some peeling wallpaper over there and I have a little bit of drywall that needs to be repaired there. And there's a couple of cracks in my floorboard. Surely Jesus is going to clean those things up. But then you come to figure out that Jesus starts getting a wrecking ball and he's crushing every wall in your house and he's taking it down to the studs and he brings this sledgehammer and even removes the studs and brings everything down to ruin. And Lewis said, what God is doing is he's changing your expectation. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But what Jesus is doing is he is building a palace. He intends to come and live, it, live in it himself. 
See, we think often that the sacrifice that God calls us to in this life by dying to sin and living to righteousness and living in repentance is God telling us, you you don't deserve pleasure in this life. No, what he is doing is he's actually bringing us down to the studs because he, the eternal God of the universe, intends to live in us and carry us on into an eternal weight of glory, making us creatures of heaven. Jesus came to destroy sin, and he means to destroy it in you. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's the only way to eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you so love the world that you sent your only son, that so whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That you so love us that you sent Jesus to endure the fires of hell in our place, to bear the full punishment and condemnation of hell in our place on the cross. Thank you, Father. And Jesus, we thank you for your warnings. They are uncomfortable to hear. We are, we are deeply sorry for not taking them seriously and treating them with sobriety. Forgive us for ways that we often are tempted to take a razor to your words, knowing that we can never find life that way. And we ask Jesus, by your grace, through your spirit, powerfully work within us. Please help us to submit ourselves to your work of sanctification in our lives. Help us cut sin from our lives, turn away from it every day, and trust more in you to change us from the inside out. We desperately need it. And we know that we can't do it on our own. Christ, by your strength in us, transform us. Please, we pray, from one degree of glory to the next. Make us more in your image and likeness, more into creatures equipped for the eternal kingdom of God. And lastly, Jesus, we pray, even now this morning, we recognize there's some people who might be in here who do not have a living faith in you. Please, by your grace, work faith in them. Help them to repent to believe in the good news that whoever comes to you, you will never cast out and nothing can separate us from that love and that you will work powerfully in us to make us creatures of heaven. Would you make that happen in their hearts now? We pray this in your name to your glory. Amen.